Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. So what are you doing at 10 a.m. Eastern time? That is the big decision this morning when the United States Ambassador Lighthizer testifies to a House panel. The Fed's Jay Powell testifies to a House panel. And at the very same time, the president's former lawyer, Michael Cohen, testifies before a House panel panel. To help answer that question here in New York, Todd Mariano, Eurasia Group US Director and Shabhav Jalanous, Credit Suisse Head of FX and Macro Trading Strategy. So what do you do at 10 a.m., Todd? You've got those three screens. Which one are you watching? First of all, I try to watch all three at once. Uh, but failing that endeavor, I have to go with Lighthizer first and catching up with the other two in full later. What do you think, Shahab? I think from a pure entertainment perspective. You're watching yeah, Cohen? I'd, I'd watch Cohen, but <laughs> I'd have to agree with Todd. From a professional perspective, Lighthizer comes first. Yeah, it's funny that for the substance, the focus, I think for many people, Tom Keen, is going to be on Ambassador Lighthizer. But the distraction and the fireworks oh. and the theater is coming from yeah, Cohen, for, for those on radio, you just see the body language in Hanoi. And as a beginning statement, it's totally different than Singapore. They're at the Metropole Hotel Shop. You've you've uh, been there, John. Have you been to the Metropole? I've never been in Hanoi. I've never been, but it's beautifully restored. It's elegant. You can buy fancy watches. You can have pate. Uh, what what was it? Wagyu beef. I they don't, don't serve that at McDonald's, but the whole thing. And the answer is that's a different president than what we saw in Singapore. Uh, he think, is beleaguered. You, you think today's events are weighing on him somewhat? Absolutely. You saw it with the tweets this morning. I mean, the tweets this morning, the eclectic sense of them, Todd, yeah. was it was extraordinary where he is distracted by domestic issues. Not that he's the first president to ever have that. He can't not be distracted by what's going on. It's it's too important to his presidency. Um, you know, certainly with with what's going on in the in the House, just in the yeah. oversight and reform, let alone, you know, the various other investigations, the drip, drip, drip of of what comes out every day. Even his harshest critics give the president Shahab massive cred for trying to jumpstart a medieval kingdom towards some form of model of Asian capitalism. The president mentioned that in his comments. He sees tremendous, I believe is the word he used. I'm paraphrasing there, folks. Shahab, can he be optimistic about any sense of North Vietnam becoming like Laos? Well, I think, I think uh, you know, having actually visited DM, the DMZ some years ago and seen that even then there were factories across the border that were producing products you know, for South Korea and others. The potential is clearly there, and even some of the infrastructure is already there. Uh, and with relations between South Korea and North Korea improving as well constantly, um, we do have you know, some glimmers of hope here. But I think ultimately, though, it's not so much about what Trump thinks about all of this. It's North Korea's domestic internal political structure that's very hard to read uh, from, from where I sit. For anyone waking up on Wall Street this morning, this isn't even on the radar, is it, Todd, the situation in Hanoi? Is this, is this something you're even paying attention to? Probably pay more attention tomorrow to, uh, you know, actual outcomes, the, the press conference. Last time in Singapore, we had 
President Trump mentioned a couple things during the press conference that weren't in the joint statement. Um, but markets in general, from a macro perspective, are, uh, as Shahab was saying earlier, going to look at this from an as an up or down vote. You know, do we have a yeah. higher geopolitical risk premium, um, you know, or a, or a lower one or, or staying the same? The, the nuance is harder to price. And also, as you said at the top of this program, your focus today will actually be on whatever Ambassador Lighthizer has to say in front of a House panel. I just wonder to what degree the story playing out in Hanoi actually folds into the trade story and China being the important piece in both. What are your thoughts on that, Todd? Yeah, well, you know, the the chart that that Tom uh, put up on uh, TV earlier today is is interesting it gets at it gets at okay the, <laughs> uh, more more than okay as as usual Farrell didn't want me to use that chart I don't know what chart it oh, is oh you don't that's because you're chart, focused on the real on, yield charts on radio okay. five minutes into the show come on charts on radio here it is nominal GDP per capita the growth rate of the Asian nations back to 1990 and Todd, is, is we, just to quickly summarize, China and Vietnam on fire, Cambodia a little less, and Laos worse than that trailing. Yeah, this is, uh, this is what I think the North Koreans would, would ideally like to achieve. Of course, for, for China, it's an economic opportunity as well. And what, uh, what we see across that whole region now is, is competition, you know, not only over, you know, just economic models and, and influence, things like that, but, you know, but certainly over uh, technology, too. So, you know, China's approach here has been to, um, you know, play this a little more quietly, stay behind the scenes while uh, while the U.S. is really out in front, kind of, you know, driving this summitry with, with Kim Jong-un. For them, it's a, it's a longer-term game, I, I think, of economic competition. So let's spend a couple of minutes talking about what you want to focus on a little bit later this morning, which is the hearing with Lighthizer on trade specifically. What are the missing pieces that you want some color on? I would say, um, first and foremost, USMCA. It's it's uh, something where lawmakers have been trying to get a little bit more uh, color from Lighthizer. Where do we, um, you know, where do we stand on some of the procedural steps? Um, very importantly, uh, where is Mexico with their labor law? And um, you know, certainly the steel and aluminum tariffs that are still in place on Canada and Mexico ought to be lifted, you know, especially for some Republican lawmakers, you know, to give their blessing to this agreement. So um, some additional, you know, detail from Lighthizer would, would really be interesting for me. Jahab, what are you looking for? Well, I think one of the uh, debates in the market has been about the extent to which this apparent divide between uh, some of the hardliners on China uh, on the trade issue and Lighthizer might be seen as one of them, and Trump himself who's looking for a deal. Some sense as, as to how protracted that conflict could be if there is one, um, and is it bad enough to potentially derail the talks and stop the market getting to where, where it wants to with respect to this issue. Um, I don't imagine that we'll see that today, but of course, if, if it comes out uh, looking negative on that front, then there could be a bit of an upset for the market on that front. I think it's good, John, that you bring up the China trade talks, because the fact is the vast majority of Americans are completely distracted by this other stuff. And yet these are going to be substantial discussions well, about Mr. Primar Lighthizer. Primarily the distraction will be Michael Cohen today. I would say, given the last 12 hours, for those waking up across America right now, just the last 12 hours of the, the I guess the leak of, is it to uh, leak uh, to the New York Times, of course, on the language of Mr. Cohen alone brings that to new level of 
acuity. Yeah, planning to tell the committee about alleged misdeeds by his former boss. Yeah. And we're going to have how many hours of this later today? Well, three days or two days, whatever it is. But, well, of course, what we're seeing now across all of news is, of course, these images uh, from Hanoi uh, as well. I think we're going to have to leave it there, gentlemen. The, the news flow just extraordinary. Charles going to stick with us. We're going to oh, get his good. thoughts a little bit later on the I mean, situation. Actually talk about markets. And in the financial markets. That's the back of the events in Pakistan and India over yeah. the last couple of days. A special thanks to Todd Mariano. Todd, thank you. Eurasia Group's U.S. Director. John, extraordinary to see just the immediacy in the last 60 minutes of the headlines on India and Pakistan. The Economic Times of India says, let better sense prevail, we're willing to talk, says Mr. Khan of Pakistan. That's sort of the latest nugget. Prime Minister Imran Khan is trying to make this settle down a little bit after the events of the the last couple of days or so. The biggest escalation, I have to say, in decades. India saying that an Air Force pilot was missing after Pakistan said it has shot down two Indian fighter jets. Relations between what many people consider to be arch rivals have just worsened amid the possibility, potentially, of course, there is always the risk of full-blown war. I want to bring in, from New Delhi, Ian Marlowe, Bloomberg South Asia government reporter. Ian, some fantastic reporting from the team and yourself over the last couple of days. Can you get us up to speed on where we are now, where we have been, and where this is going? Yeah, at the moment, we're all still uh, in a little bit of shock from the the speed at which events have moved here. Uh, Earlier today, two jets, um, uh, Pakistan announced that they had shot down two jets, and then India came out and confirmed that uh, a pilot, uh, one of their Indian Air Force pilots, was was in uh, Pakistani custody, um, or at least that uh, he was missing in action. Um, So at the moment, we're all waiting to see how India responds to uh, the developments of today, um, what Pakistan alleges are two downed Indian Air Force fighters. And as a lot of other commentators have said, uh, this is some of the, the, the most uh, severe es- military escalation we've seen in decades. Um, and uh, some say dating back 50 years to the 1971 uh, Indo-Pakistani War. So Prime Minister Imran Khan, Ian, saying that he only took action after ascertaining damage was done by India's attack on Tuesday. He called for dialogue. Essentially, he said, better sense should prevail. We should sit down and talk. What is the Indian response? Uh, There hasn't been a solid Indian response to uh, Prime Minister Khan's comments uh, so far. Um, It it would be useful to to note that um, over the past um, year, uh, Khan has made various gestures to India indicating that he would be happy to have some kind of peace talks with uh, with India. Uh, But India always sort of goes back to their uh, default position, which is that they say Pakistan sponsors terrorists uh, and trains them and they strike inside India and that they do that as a way to avoid a sort of direct military confrontation. So India says we will not talk and there is no point in talking unless you stop that and acknowledge that. And so at the, at the same time, Khan 
you know, can't come out and acknowledge that because of uh, domestic politics and other things in India. Uh, that's what the U.S. and other countries think is happening. Uh, and India is probably unlikely to, to engage in any uh, widespread or, or sort of meaningful talks with, with Pakistan at the moment. The one thing we're sort of looking at is whether there could be any sort of restricted talks in terms of getting this uh, pilot back. Um, and that's something that at the moment uh, isn't quite clear because India hasn't made their, made their stance uh, known. Ian, as you say, it's been surprising because it's happened so quickly. The events of the last day or so, they feel somewhat clumsy, the way all of this has played out in the last several hours. Your thoughts on that? Yeah, absolutely. It's been it's been pretty remarkable. To um, you know, each day, there's something dramatically different, um, and each each side um, is claiming a remarkably different set of facts here. Uh, on Monday, India said they bombed a terrorist camp and killed 300 people. Uh, Pakistan mm. said nothing was hit at all. Uh, there was just some damage on a sort of hillside somewhere in the in the mountains. Um, and today we have you know two jets one jet, two pilots captured, one pilot captured. No one's quite sure uh, who to believe at the moment. Um, it's quite clear that these are, um, you know, very uh, kind of diametrically opposed positions. And it's very, very sort of weighted uh, in terms of what people are allowed to say on the record. Um, you know, for example, right. whether, yeah. Ian, there's 22 major languages in India by one count. I'll let you decide as the expert here. And within those languages is an election for Mr. Modi, and within the linkage of language to culture is religion. Give our viewers worldwide, our listeners rather worldwide, a sense of the religion debate in India now after these hostilities. Yeah, I mean, so Kashmir is obviously a Muslim-majority uh, state. And so after the terrorist attack uh, of uh, earlier this month on February 14th that killed 40 uh, Indian paramilitary troops, uh, there was a, a strong reaction um, inside uh, India towards um, Kashmiris and uh, Kashmiri businesses. You had some hotels in parts of the um, sort of uh, the, the sort of Hindu majority states um, saying uh, we don't want Kashmiris coming to our hotels. You had a, uh, a state governor who was appointed by the ruling party uh, urging a boycott of Kashmir, so saying Indians shouldn't go there for tourism, uh, you shouldn't uh, frequent Kashmiri businesses. And I mean, obviously, I mean, most most Kashmiris are Muslim, and this, this is very weighted, uh, kind of fraught language uh, coming ahead of an election. And and the U.S. government, you know, has warned in the past that you know, as elections approach in India, um, there could be religious clashes. And that's something that a lot of analysts are, are waiting to see. Um, no one you know, expected um, a sort of India-Pakistan confrontation ahead yeah. of the election. And obviously, um, you know, Pakistan does play up uh, every once in a while the treatment of, uh, of Muslims in, in India. Ian, always great to get your thoughts and insight from, from the team over in New Delhi. Fantastic. Bloomberg South Asia government reporter. Carl Riccadonna with us with Bloomberg Economics. He and Tim Mahady have published on all things Powell. But first, let's go to Janice Smilek, who is in the trenches of looking question to question. Gina, is the chairman going to have to face today political questions from a Democratic House? Is, is, is there going to be a much more political chit-chat than what we witnessed yesterday? 
You know, it's an interesting question. We did see some political chit-chat yesterday. Yes. You know, there were questions about the fact that, you know, Donald Trump, actually Janet Yellen's comment from earlier this week, that Donald Trump really doesn't understand what the Fed is doing got raised. I think you could definitely see more of that. You're also likely to see... Powell kind of demure and choose not to answer. No, I know, I know that, but because, okay, but let's cut to the way. theater. Let's cut to the theater with the news flow. John <laughs> Farrell says, watch a trade representative testimony, not this song and dance. Okay, sell me on why I need to watch Powell. Is he going to answer any questions from, from Democratic socialists? I mean, let's cut to the chase. Is he going to have to bounce off socialism today? It's an interesting question. He certainly pushed back heavily on this idea that deficits don't matter in a country that that is the reserve currency yesterday. Right. And I thought that it, his his pushback on that was really full throated. Certainly more right. definitive than I I would have expected from Chair Powell. Yeah. I think also it's going to be really interesting to watch to see if he gets asked more about the Fed's current rethink. You know, they are considering right. potentially going to to some sort of average inflation targeting or price level targeting regime rather than the symmetric regime that they're yeah. in right now. And he got asked about that yesterday. This is a big deal for the Fed. This this whole year long process. Symmetric, asymmetric. Policy yeah. In the future. Yeah. yeah. Is he going to? So if, if he gets more pushback, interesting. Is he going to be asked about the collapse of Duke? I mean, what do you think? <laughs> I mean, one can only hope. Okay, very so. good. Gina Smilek of Chapel Hill. Thank you so much for joining you us. You know, there's a drinking today. game. Over the uh, over the last twenty four hours and into today as well. Uh, oh, I, I'm all do you want to know what the buzzword is? Duke for the, for the second day of the testimony. It's not Duke. Oh, okay. It's it's not my lane. Oh, it's not my when, lane. When Chairman yes. Powell says it's not my lane, great. That's when you have a shot. And I imagine you'll be getting a lot more drunk today than you got yesterday. I, I would think so as well. Carl Riccadonna here. Why don't you bring in Mr. Riccadonna, who knows the multiple lanes of the American economy? Bloomberg Economics chief U.S. economist Carl. He says that a lot, doesn't he? I don't think it's fair when you are at the <laughs> controls of the largest economy in the world, and the Fed chair is, like yeah. it or not, to say that's not in my lane. Everything pretty much falls under your... But uh, he still says it, right? Yeah, he can say it. They can. The Fed can deny they're responsible for uh, participation trends and productivity growth and all those good things. Uh, they have to be held accountable uh, to some extent. The chairman's had some difficulty with communication over the last year or so some he's had a pretty good pretty good day going into the second day is that why we watch this still just in case we is it the just in case that is interesting absolutely about this? and so ordinarily the prepared testimony the the, the speech he reads at the at the onset is identical on day two it doesn't have to be identical so if there is a misstatement or a big market move on day one they can tweak yeah. the language there wasn't a big market move yesterday so i don't expect that i, I want the framework to be your Bloomberg intelligence and Bloomberg economics work, which is you, certainly your job is not to predict what the Fed will do, but you have stated very coherently, here's why we're gonna see a rate rise or even two of them. That's the backdrop of all this chit chat, isn't it? Is he's never been as far away from the markets as he is right now. Absolutely. I think the Fed's been uh, rattled. Uh, they've lost a little bit of their confidence after what happened in Q4. And uh, the and lesson the from Q4 is that. you don't raise rates when equities are already down about 12% going into the meeting unless you really want to create a foul mood. And so they did that. They made okay. that communications blunder. And they had to backtrack as a result. They're now less confident that they have the, the teeth 
leaves right uh, in the economy. And so I think we're now looking at a more reactionary Fed in 2019 compared to 2018. And that reactionary uh, behavior means that as we get more inflation heading into mid-year, they're going to reverse course Where's again the inflation? and move you, back you into tightening like mode. You sound like Charles Plosser on a bad day. Where's the inflation? <laughs> Just because the inflation hawks Where's have been inflation? wrong for the last eight years doesn't mean they'll be wrong in 2019. Here's where the inflation is. It's in goods, it's in services, it's in wages. Inflation is up 40 bips uh, over the course of uh, last year. That acceleration is going to extend into 2019 as the economy continues to operate above trend. Dangerous words in economics, this time is different. What is different in 2019? See, We've gone see, through full employment and we're starting to see, see wage the voice pressures. Changes? The, well, he knows the, what's the coming. Voice, the voice changes. He knows what's coming. It's like you should see him. He can bring a bar to a complete halt on Newtonian I've, calculus. I've decided that I prefer Tim Mahidi. Yeah. <laughs> Why don't you step in here? I look alone. Rick Adana fired up. Inflation, second half of the year. Okay, so the Fed sits there. Inflation starts creeping a little bit higher. Then all the Doom crew come out and say, 2020's coming. It's not going to be pretty. Why do they hike into that? Sure. They hike into that because uh, they simply won't have the tolerance to sit on their hands as they reassess economic conditions at mid-year and realize, okay, we had a bit of a soft patch towards the end of 18 and the first part of 19. We had an earnings recession, possibly. Not an outright recession, an earnings recession. Uh, That has uh, subsequently passed, and we have an economy operating above trend. We have inflation above their target, and we have wage pressures at at the fastest pace of the cycle, and we're seeing evidence that those wage pressures are indeed passing through into consumer prices yeah and they realize so a setting of zero well, on real interest rates is not appropriate what about the argument that inflation is undershot for so long that we need to let an overshoot take place for a little while well that this debate's is happening very publicly that's at the something FOMC gina right highlighted now. and something they're considering uh, do you simply reset the the clock every year on january 1st and say let's aim for two percent this year or do you say we need to make up for lost time? This is really important. And, and this Hyman is the debate happening at the well. Fed, and they're not okay. clear on what the answer what is. What is the yet. history? What is the history of the quote overshoot unquote? Can they can they establish a policy to overshoot two percent? It's not in their DNA, it's, Tom. It's, it's not in their history. It's not I in their say. history. It's not in their DNA. If we're looking Which at means core inflation, by de- Neil absolutely. Sons- Asymmetric by definition, and you can see that in inflation expectations, right? As soon as we're overshooting their 2% target, they're going to panic and what start pushing more heavily on the interest rate level. The How many basis points does a 10-year pop, um, given the asymmetric nature, nature, the lack of history, we get the Riccadonna world, what's it going to do to my portfolio and my yield market? Sure. Well, it's going to push yield back up to the beats, levels. Five zero? I think that's a fair assessment, uh, or even more as we return to what yields looked like See in the latter half of last show? year. I know. Those I are mean, still it, pretty low yields. The, the real yield will be the unreal yield because real yields will disappear. Well, speaking right. of real But rates. you bring an important point. The Fed I is going to let the market lead the way on this. The Fed doesn't want to jawbone the market into rate hikes. The Fed's going to sit back and say, patient, 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 yeah. until the market is crying for rate hikes. And then Jay Powell you, will say, you happy on, to oblige. You touched on something important, Carl, just to wrap this conversation up. Real <laughs> rates at the Federal Reserve, we are barely real. We are essentially at zero. How sensitive are they to that? The economy has never slowed or gone into recession with rates as low as they are right now. Jay Powell is not stepping on the brake pedal. Yet people think we might have gone through neutral. 
with the right where it is right now. And in July, when we're next talking about the semi-annual testimony of the Fed chair on Capitol Hill, yeah. we'll reassess and say we weren't at neutral. Okay. And the economy's still Carl, growing above trend. You got to be proud. Did you see how Pharaoh jumped right there to elasticities of Fed dynamics? <laughs> Carl, it, we're going to test it, those it's, elasticities it's, this year. Very um, crystal ball. That was very Newtonian. About, about the second half of this year. N Newtonian ran the mint at the, at the tower. I wanted to have a good discussion now with where we are in 2019 and maybe project to the future of our fractious international relations in the Pacific. And you can, of course, do that with James Trevitas, formerly with Tufts University, now the Carlisle Group, and noted author. But I think I need to step back, as I have the last few days, uh, Admiral, in trying to bring a little history into what is west of the Red River, uh, what is near the wonderful Lake of the Restored Sword in Hanoi, and discussions of a prison and discussions of a hotel where the president ate and just left moments uh, ago. But let me begin with your Hanoi of 1972 when you wandered out of San Diego on the USS Jewett. What was Vietnam like when you first put out to sea? What a wonderful question, Tom. Uh, the, the war was on the downslope. You'll recall we had withdrawn almost all of the U.S. troops at that point. We were continuing to fund the South Vietnamese security forces. They were holding their own against the Viet Cong. And then, unfortunately, before I even left the Naval Academy, uh, by 75, we cut off that funding Saigon fell, now it's Ho Chi Minh City, helicopters lifting off the rooftop from the embassies. Not a good outcome. Flash forward now these 40-plus years, uh, we're in a, a positive relationship with Vietnam. I never could have imagined that back in the 1970s. What should those older think who remember the name Alvarez and remember the name Thompson, our two longest POWs? How should they interpret where we are in 2019. I have spoken to many of the POWs over the years, including to the most famous of them, Senator John McCain, who spent uh, seven years in the Hanoi Hilton. I have visited his cell in the Hanoi Hilton, the prison Hilton. And uh, they will tell you universally, the POWs, that they are happy to see uh, a reduction in tensions between the United States and Vietnam, um, they have risen above the pain and the anguish they went through, and we ought to salute every single one of them. How do you, as a former admiral and, and retired with a great distinction and as an author, how do you interpret the president's tweet this morning going after the senator from Connecticut, who I believe was a Marine reservist, and with the various deferments and, and, and all that? How do you interpret that tweet this morning, admiral? Um, I'm disheartened by it. I think this is uh, Senator Blumenthal, who's not only uh, a Marine Corps veteran, uh, he has a son who's a SEAL and another son who's a, a Marine Corps officer. Um, he's someone, Blumenthal, who cares deeply about the country. What I hate to see going both ways, Tom, is this ad hominem attitude of personal attack. We've got big policy issues we have to solve as a nation. 
let's rise above the uh, horrible tweets and the name calling and the insults. Let's get after what we have to get done and to include solving this challenge with North Korea. Give us an update on where we should be with the DMZ in North Korea in two years or in five years. I'd say in the most optimistic case, in two years, we will have obtained an inventory of North Korean nuclear weapons. I think in five years, we may be able to put in place an international observation regime around those nuclear weapons. But, Tom, I'll tell you the bad news is I think the chances of Kim Jong-un actually giving up those weapons completely are roughly the same as the chances of the Mexicans paying for the wall. Uh, I'd say they approach negative infinity. So we've got to be mindful of how we can contain his nuclear capability. Uh, The president's dealing with a very tricky, very lethal foe in these negotiations. I wish him well, but I'm very concerned. I've been surprised, Admiral, if you're just joining us, James Trevitas with us with the Carlisle Group, and we're thrilled that he could be with us on this historic day. The president meeting again with Mr. Kim of North Korea. They have just had uh, dinner at the Metropole uh, in North Korea, and uh, the president has left, oh, 20 minutes ago or so uh, from that dinner in the late night of Hanoi, uh, Vietnam. Admiral Trevitas, there is Busan Naval Base which I believe is the follow-on South Korean naval base to Jinhai. Explain our support of South Korea and what South Korea needs to see from this summit. I'm glad you bring that up, Tom, because we spend way too much time yelling at the North Koreans and not enough time talking to the South Koreans who understand the North Koreans in three-dimensional ways that we will never completely get. So you mentioned Busan, the naval base in the South. It's uh, emblematic of this deep military and intelligence and cyber relationship we have with South Korea. What the South Koreans want to see is war avoidance, but they also want to see continued deterrence of Kim's, not only his nuclear force, Tom, but his conventional forces. He is one of the largest standing armies in the world. He has extensive stocks of chemical and biological weapons. If we do solve the nuclear problem, the South Koreans want us there to continue to deter those conventional forces. Whether Democrat or Republican, how do we affect a policy or initiate a policy with North Korea, given what is clear documented human rights abuses? You mentioned chemical weapons just as one idea, but I mean, some of the reports I've seen, which I would suggest folks are documented, are outright labor camps, which are literally out of the fiction of Game of Thrones, except it's not Hollywood or, 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 or London-based fiction. It's real. How do we affect a policy with a nation like that, or a, a regime, I should say, like that? You know, Henry Kissinger said to me once, Tom, that every time we solve a problem, we are presented with a key to a door through which lies the next problem. And if we can solve the nuclear problem, I would argue that door that we're going to open is going to have to lead us ultimately to further sanctions on North Korea for running these labor camps. And I would direct your readers, you and I always talk about books, I would direct your readers to a National Book Award winner, The Orphan Master's Son by Steve Johnson, which is a searing portrait of this dystopian society. 
which door does China want opened? And by Beijing, and I, I don't mean the fixation I have on Shanghai or Hong Kong or that, but the Northeast China and that river across to North Korea, which uh, door does China want opened off, off, off this summit? I'll tell you the one they don't want opened is they don't want a war on the Korean Peninsula because that would open the door to millions of refugees flowing into China. Okay, so there's 25. If there's 25 million admiral in North Korea, how many of those millions would would drift over into China off of 23 or 25 million? Five, five to seven million. And so China has skin in the game here. And I would argue the Korean Peninsula is a problem we can solve with China. Uh, because yeah. to get to Kim, all roads to Pyongyang in the end, Tom, lead to Beijing. We've got to get China in the game. Four-party talks are the way to go. Let's get out of this one-on-one between the president and Chairman Kim. James Trevitas, thank you so much. I am so choked up emotionally that I'm going to have to have you bring in our next esteemed guest. Folks, it's impossible to believe this. It's sort of like the end of Raiders of the Lost Ark where they take the Ark into the Pentagon and it's, you know, wherever they are in the warehouse. And they take the Ark into the warehouse and it's lost there. Somewhere out there on the Bloomberg Terminal (laughs) is the audio of my first time I was ever on Bloomberg Radio. I we have that to, audio. We need it, to get that. You have it. <laughs> I'm keeping it. Was, it. <laughs> I was, the, the sweat, I was so nervous and shaking as I was grilled, and I say <laughs> grilled by our next guest. And she was a saint to let me get through. I hope this is a payback my, here. <laughs> exactly. My lengthy interview of two minutes, 22 exactly. seconds. <laughs> well, that would be the one June Grasso. June is... Uh, co-host of Bloomberg Politics, Policy, Power, and Law. And she, that's every day at 12 Eastern in uh, in the in East Coast. She and I haven't talked in eight years. Exactly. Yeah, no, I know. He just comes by my desk and says so, random things. So, June, we're looking here at this, you know, on the our monitor here in uh, Michael Cohen, the, the, the folks in Congress are getting seated and getting ready for this. So this Michael Cohen uh, hearing that is coming up, the testimony, what do you expect to really hear today? May I first paraphrase Betty Davis, who said, fasten your seatbelts? It's going to be a bumpy ride today, okay? There's a lot of uncertainty here, isn't there? There, there is, but if, you know, I'd read his statement, his opening statement, and that's just the opening salvo. And he starts out saying that President Trump is a racist, a con man, a cheat. And then he goes into specific instances and specific incidents that we have been talking about for perhaps two is years it and backs it up. Is it lawyerly? I, it's is that not, the right word? It's, it's not lawyerly, except that there is a part where he backs up what he says, some of what he says, with evidence. And, you know, we've talked about this before, okay. but it's very important because they're going to attack okay. him as, and he admits, he's a liar. He's a convicted liar. Yeah, okay, but June... You know, you're too young to remember the John Dean moment. <laughs> I do but love it. I, 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 you know, remember the John Dean moment. I'm looking at the cameras right now. This is a huge, huge turnout for this hearing. Are we going to have a John Dean moment like in Watergate of Lore? 
it might be close to a John Dean moment. Remember something, John Dean, his testimony became so riveting and so important because it was then backed up by the tapes, the tapes, the Nixon tapes. In this instance, you're not likely going to have that. You may have some oh, tapes, by the way. but you got a canceled way. check for $35,000. Not only that, you have canceled checks. You have financial records that he sent to Deutsche Bank. So you do, have, and that's why I say it is lawyerly in part, because he does have the backup. And I think that you're going to hear things that people have said and were suspected, and he's going to say they're true. For example, you're going to hear about the hush money payments to Stormy Daniels. That's the canceled check. Who? <laughs> yes, um, I'll I'll explain that to you after after the show, okay? Um, the hush money payments to Stormy Daniels, that he knew about the release of the hacked WikiLeaks and things that Michael Cohen heard, things that he saw, and I think his testimony also has a sort of um, literary side to it. I mean, he he has certain things that he says that that uh, you will appreciate. He said uh, that. Donald Trump is a man who ran for office to make his brand great, not to make our country great. So there are little things sprinkled in there that you'll enjoy. So, June, do you think there's a smoking gun that will come out today? I think that when it won't be so much of smoking gun. We know the smoking gun now because we've seen his testimony. That's the smoking gun. But things that we have been questioning for years, taxes, you know, all the financial statements, the dealings with Russia. This is the man who did all that, who was his personal attorney, his fixer. So yeah, I think there are going to be some moments where there might be bombshell moments in right. this, and it depends on what they ask him. What is his approach here so he does not jeopardize his future with other prosecutions, other legal events? I don't think he is, I don't think he's considering that. I think he's going all out for it. He's facing prison time. How long time. is he in jail right now? What's well, he's his not in jail yet. Time? He's going to be in jail for three years. Three years. And um, no, there is. This is the thing. In order for him to reduce that prison time, you have to have a prosecutor <clears throat> come forward and say to a judge, "Judge, I want you to reconsider this because the Southern District prosecutors are not happy with him because he lied to them to start out with. Mueller has already really dealt with him. So the question is, who would do that?" So he is going to go all out here. I can't imagine him holding anything back except for what Mueller does, has said he can't. Does he him. have legal representation today or is he just showing up as a guy on his way to prison? <laughs> he does have legal representation. However, I think that right. it's going to be mostly you're going to hear people object and that, you know, in other words, you can't say that because we have this Mueller investigation going on. That will be the only thing that stops him. And let just say one thing, because the Republicans are going to attack him as a liar. But I just want to remind everyone that in courtrooms across the country today, there are going to be people who are the prime witnesses for the prosecution who have lied, who have cheated, who have stolen. And they'll be believed by juries because they'll have corroboration. That's a really important point. So so aside, yeah. you bring up the good point, which is this obviously this is not a jury trial and it's more about uh, public relations and getting information out there, arguably. But if, if I'm a Republican senator on this committee today, what's the, my most effective way to challenge the testimony of Michael Cohen? You're a convicted liar. You lied before. Why should we believe you now? Why aren't you lying now? So what's the difference? Because he'll give a piece of evidence, right? He will. For some of this, he can't give evidence yeah, for fair. all of this. Yeah, and that. even some of the evidence, you know, I can imagine. And you know what is very, I, I struck me this morning. Some of the ramblings of Rudy Giuliani make sense now. Remember when he what described. What do you mean by that? Remember when he described, he kept backing backing up about the 
Stormy Daniels hush payments. And finally he Who? said, well, <laughs> <laughs> we really will have a talk after promise. No, I, I love busting you, Joe. Yeah, Keep that's going. okay. No, but he will. Say, he said, all of a sudden he came out with this, well, there were payments that came into the into his lawyer's office and his lawyer then paid. Yeah. And now we see why there's a canceled check. Yeah, yeah. So it, it's, June it Grass, makes sense. Thank you so much. A Thank pleasure. You. Greatly appreciate it. And I, I, I am willing to barter over that tape I have of you. Oh, my <laughs> word. It's out there, folks. It's, it's out there, and soon there'll be testimony in front of Congress. Wonderful always to have June Grasso with us with uh, her patience a few years ago. So. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.